Well, hey, again, welcome to uh, Bergen Park Church. You made it out this morning. So you've already accomplished something great today. Your day's set. You've already done it. So, hey, if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. And I've got to tell you that, you know, as I went through this in the first service, I thought, this is kind of deep. Um, I, this is my learning edge. So what I'm sharing with you this morning, and actually let me share, if, you, if you're not familiar with the Bible Project, have you guys heard of the Bible Project? It's an app, it's a website, there are amazing videos on the Bible Project, and Tim Mackey is the main teacher on the Bible Project. If there's anything you want to know about, go to the Bible Project. If you want to read a book of the Bible, they have these summary videos They'll be like eight minutes on the, the Gospel of Matthew or five minutes. And what they do is amazing. They don't just talk to you. They draw it. Any visual learners? You know, you need a picture, right? Like, you need to see it. Sometimes I need to see it more than I need to hear it. So go to the Bible Project. Uh, get the app. Uh, go on the website. And actually got these amazing videos. So like Kingdom of God, that's uh, actually we're going to talk about. It. I shouldn't have told you that because I was going to ask you a question that was going to set you up. But I already gave you the answer, so I blew it. Sorry. I apologize. This is second service, so that's, that's what happens in the second service. Anyways, if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and following. So here's the question. You ready? You already know the answer. But uh, if you were going to summarize the message that Jesus preached, how would you summarize it? Now, here's why that's important. Because what we think about what Jesus said tells us a lot about what we think about Jesus. So if you had to summarize the message, the core message in one sentence, and you can write it down if you like to, summarize the message of Jesus in one sentence, what would you write down? What would be his core message? Because again, what you think about Jesus and what you think about what Jesus said, it says a lot about what you think about Jesus and why you think he came. So that's setting it up, because in Matthew chapter 4, we're beginning a new series today. In some ways, it's tied to this old series we just went through. It's not old. It's still new. But anyways, we just went through this series talking about what does it mean for us to follow Jesus. And it means to reorganize our life around three core principles. The first is to be with Jesus, because a disciple is someone who wants to be with their teacher, with their rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi in the first century sense, and so those that were following him wanted to be with him. Second, they wanted to become like him. So in being with him, the purpose of being with him was to hear what he taught, to be alongside him, to love what he loved, to become like him in their character, in the way they approach the world, approach themselves, approach God and others. So they want to become like him. And then the third principle is they wanted to actually go out and do what Jesus did. So when Jesus said, come and follow me, he said, come and be with me. Now, the reason you're with me is for the second thing to happen. You can become like me because the only way you can become like Jesus is you actually got to be with Jesus. It's not a moral reformation project. God isn't looking for good boys and girls. He doesn't want nice people. He wants new people. And the way that transformation happens is we have to be with him. And then Paul says, you know, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another as we gaze upon the Lord who is glory. The more we see God, the more we seek him and his grace and his truth, the more we are transformed and we're transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And so we want to become like him. The third principle is as a believer, as a Christian, God actually, he actually wants you to do what Jesus did. That may be new to some of you. You thought you were just in it for heaven, right? No, we're in it for the kingdom on earth. Jesus prayed, I want, 
I want earth to be like heaven and I want heaven to show up in you so that heaven can flow through you and restore that which sin has broken. So that's the story. Or reorganizing your life around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and then doing what Jesus did. Now, to do that, we have to know what the core message is that Jesus taught. So that's where Matthew chapter four is gonna come in. So let's jump in. Matthew chapter four, we're gonna pick it up in verse 12. The word of the Lord. Now, when he, meaning Jesus, heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went into Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. The, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling the region, the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Verse 17, and from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, come, uh, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And when he went throughout Galilee, he was teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout Syria, and they brought him all the sick, all those who were afflicted with pains and diseases, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan, and they they followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, thanks be to God. Hey, let me just, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that the psalmist tells us, um, Lord, how majestic, how majestic is, is your name? It's more majestic than the mountains and the snow. It's more majestic than the sunrise and the sunset. You, and yet, Father, though you are clothed in glory, you have chose to crown us created in the image of God with glory and with honor. We don't see ourselves that way, Father, forgive us. And so I pray over us today, we would know that we are crowned with glory and honor. We are made just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. And yet, Father, you've entrusted us with your creation. We are to be your co-rulers over creation, doing things in a way that reflect your heart, your character, your values, your law. And so, Father, as we come to this word that is ancient and yet living, open our eyes to see the message which Jesus brought, and not just the message, but the way in which the kingdom of God has broken into this dark world and has brought healing and life into our lives and to the lives of others. Guide us into this truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you, if you were in the first century and you heard this prophet, right, this prophet from God, Galilee, from Nazareth, what good can possibly come from Nazareth? This passage that was quoted is a quote from the Old Testament. It's talking about Zebulun, Naphtali. These are regions that were seen 
as disgraced regions. It's not like Jerusalem. That's like New York City or LA or Chicago, wherever you come from that's important. Dallas, uh, Denver, we'll add that in. These are important places. Galilee, Capernaum, these are small. These are podunk. These are backwoods, backwaters, cousins marrying each other, pink eye, all that kind of stuff is going on. That's where Jesus comes from. What good can come from these reasons? And yet the prophets say, out of these places, a a light has come. And so you're living in the first century. You're James, you're John, your father's Zebedee. Uh, You got a fishing business. You're Simon, you're Andrew, the brother of Simon. And, And you hear about this prophet, this Yeshua, that means Jesus of Nazareth. And he's off in the northern part of Galilee. And he's He's teaching, and you hear about his teaching, and you hear that he is not one that teaches like anyone else. I mean, this man, he teaches like he has authority. It's like he says something, and and the earth shakes, and the clouds appear, or, or whatever. He's just got this magnetism to him, and you hear about stories of the sick coming to Jesus, and the broken, those that are oppressed, and you hear about these these healings. And so then you found out he's going to be at our synagogue this Sabbath. And that actually means Friday night, if you didn't know that. The Sabbath began as the sun was setting on Friday night. And so you're excited. You hear Yeshua, the, the guy from the north, from Galilee, from this podunk town is coming. And yet he teaches as one with authority and lives are being changed. And so you hear he's coming to your synagogue And so you're there, but you get there a little late. Maybe it was snowing out. It was difficult to get there. And the synagogue only holds 50 people, maybe 60, 70. And so you're looking in and it's already crowded. There's 100 people in that room. You're outside and just through the the distance, you kind of see Yeshua. You see this prophet from Galilee off in the distance. What do you hear him talking about? Because see, what you think about Jesus, what you think about what Jesus said will tell you a lot about who you think Jesus is and why he came. And so if you're James and John, now not, not a 21st century believer in Evergreen, we gotta go back. What would have stirred John's heart? What would have stirred Simon's heart? Now, now to understand that, we, I think we need to know a little bit about who is this guy, Simon, Andrew? What did they love? You know, they loved their land. They loved their ancestors. They were big into genealogy back then. You know, they knew their family tree and their ancestor was this guy named Abraham. Abraham and Sarah. And God had called Abraham and Sarah and and said, hey, I'm gonna give you a land flowing with milk and honey. But there was a lot of challenges before they got there. And then Moses and Joshua led them in. And so these are a people that love their land. They love their ancestors. They love their nation. They love their God. The challenge is their land is oppressed. Oppressed by the Romans. For some 50, I don't know, 50 or 70 years, the Romans had invaded Israel, taken over the land, and they actually had built new towns. And these new towns and the people in them were filled with ex-Roman soldiers, Greeks, barbarians, just, you know, ugly kind of people that just don't value our genealogy. They don't do things like we do. They eat pigs, shellfish. They're nasty. They smell bad. And these are the people that don't care about you. They don't care about your land, and they're oppressing your people. And then your cousin, cousin Jimmy, lost his land because the Romans kept raising taxes. Every year, the taxes would go up to pay for this occupying army, and your cousin, 
Jimmy, who owns this farm, lost his farm. He's now in debtor's prison. He's actually still on the land, but he's a slave on his own land that his ancestors had for generations and generations and generations. Life is hard. Life is tough. You hear a prophet shown up from the north. I think Isaiah talked about a prophet from the north, from Galilee, from Zebulun, places that don't mean anything to us, but to them, a light has dawned. And then you hear about this guy eating locusts. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And, and you're wondering, what, what is this about? Who is this Yeshua? What is the message? So if that's who you are, that's your story, that's your life, what do you hope he's going to say? You know, I think a lot of people today in our culture would say, you know, what I hear Jesus talking about is do unto others, right? As you would have them, I like that, do unto you. A lot of people today think of Jesus as just this good, good teacher, or maybe what you would think of is love your enemies. I mean, that's radical. Pray for those who persecute. Or maybe you like the stories. Maybe what comes to mind is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, somebody sacrificing for someone who's different from them and building bridges and, and caring and loving. Or maybe it's the lost sheep. See, today, what you think about Jesus says a lot about who you think Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And so what is the summary message that Jesus brought? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. We can jump in. So if you're ready for this huge reveal that I blew earlier, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Here's his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus saw himself as the one through which God's kingdom was coming into the world. It was coming into the world through his teachings, through what he said, but also through what he did. The question becomes, what kind of kingdom is this going to be? We've seen a lot of nasty kingdoms. Even in our own time, in our own politics, we see a lot of nasty ways to take authority, a lot of nasty ways to get your agenda done. Well, here comes Jesus. He's preaching and he's proclaiming. And you're one of those who's being oppressed, oppressed by the Romans, and you hear the kingdom of God is at hand. God is going to take that which is broken and make it right. Now, the question becomes, how is he going to do that? Because we've seen a lot of ways, we know a lot of ways which it doesn't work. It just oppresses a different group of people. So what does it look like for Jesus' kingdom to come into the world and to make things right? Well, it starts with this. It starts with us. It starts with this word, repent. And repent means pay attention. Why is he saying repent? For the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying God is doing something new. You need to pay attention. You need to stop. You need to turn. You need to listen. You need to open your heart and open your ears because what I'm about to say is not what you expect. Because often when we think of J Jesus, we have these expectations of what he's supposed to do or who we think he is. And so right now, I want to encourage you, stop. Pay attention. This may be a familiar story to us, but we may have missed the implications of what Jesus is saying. And he's saying to these people, stop. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus saw himself as one who was restoring and bringing God's kingdom back to a world that was broken. Now, now what does that look like? Well, here's the question we need to ask. When's the first time in the Bible we hear kingdom language? Just think about this. You haven't read the Bible a lot, it's okay. When's the first time you hear words like rule, reign, dominion, submission, 
fill in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, right? It's Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, you have these, these pictures of God creating. He creates the heavenly stars, the skies, and he says to the lights, I want you to have dominion over the darkness, and I want you to have dominion. I want you to rule over the light. And then he creates birds, right? And, and though we can fly in mechanical and machines, we cannot have dominion over the skies the way the birds do. They do things that we can't. We don't even know how, what are those things? Not butterflies. You guys don't know what's in my head, so how can you help me? <laughs> Hummingbirds, you nailed it. You get, a, you get a point, whatever points mean. We don't even know how, right? They have dominion. Fish have dominion in the water. Animals have dominion. They fill, subdue, rule. They have this language of kings and queens. And then God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then male and female, he created them. God made this beautiful creation with all this potential, and he put us in charge. That was a bad decision, <laughs> right? Would you take something that you had invested your life into and just hand it over to someone else? See, that is the generosity of our God. He entrusts us as co-rulers with him. And this is the language of co-ruling. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, to subdue means to harness its potential. It means to bring out of the resources that you have flourishing in something beautiful, something that brings life. I want you to subdue it. And then have dominion, which means have rule. I want you to care for creation. I want you to care for the fish and the birds in the heavens and over everything that it moves on the ground. I want you to be my, my ambassador, my co-regent, my manager is a better term we might use today over what I've created. We, we don't really use the language of ruling and queens and I mean, that's another country, it's across the sea. We use the language of managing. You know, when you manage something, it's obvious you don't own it, but you're supposed to manage it through the values, through the the ways, the principles that, of the business owner. And in the same way, we are like managers that God has put in charge to care for everything he has created in a way that reflects who he is, reflects his character, reflects his nature. And so though God put us in charge and he said to us, what I want you to do is I want you to flourish under me. I want to define good and evil for you. It's important that you submit to my authority because you're under me, under my authority. You're gonna have freedom to reign, but I want you to submit and flourish under my authority, under my definitions of what is good and what is evil. And what did Adam and Eve say? Uh-uh. We want to rule. It's not enough for, just for us to be stewards. We wanna be owners. And so they redefined good and evil and they established their own rival kingdom to God's kingdom. And rebellion took place. Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. So the Bible's now like, oh my goodness, what is God gonna do to reestablish his kingdom? And if we go through the Bible, I'm just gonna summarize this quickly. One of the big next scenes is in chapter 12 of Genesis. He calls Abraham and Sarah. How is God gonna reestablish his kingdom? How is God gonna make right that which sin has destroyed? By gathering a new people. 
He says to Abraham and Sarah, I want you to leave your traditions. I want you to, I want you to leave your gods. I want you to come under my authority. I want you to be a city on a hill. I want you to be the salt of the earth. I want you to humble yourself and submit yourself to my rule and reign. And that's what Abraham and Sarah did. They changed their life. They changed their lifestyle. They changed their values. They lived under God's laws. But eventually they flourished so much that another kingdom, the kingdom of Egypt, they took notice that this nation was flourishing and the ultimate kingdom of man took over the people of God and the kingdom of man oppressed them. The kingdom of man would use laws to benefit itself. If killing babies benefited the kingdom, then killing babies are killed. If oppressing people and using them for slave labor benefited the kingdom of man, whatever the Pharaoh wanted, he was going to get. And you see this combat, you see this, this conflict between the kingdom of God, what is good, what is right, and the kingdom of man, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh just simply represents the ultimate of men's brokenness, isn't it? He's prideful. He's self-centered, doesn't care. When Moses comes to Pharaoh, right? Do you remember this? He comes to let my people go. You know what he says? Who is this Yahweh? I don't know him. Meaning his laws and his authority, they have no, they ha they have no authority here. And so what happens is you see in the story where God rescues the nation of Israel out of Egypt, you see a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And because of Pharaoh's pride, see, God didn't want Pharaoh to lose in the sense of, he wanted Pharaoh to repent. He wanted to restore the nation of Israel. But instead, I mean, Israel, Egypt, but Pharaoh was prideful. And he clashed against the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God ultimately brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And he brought them into the wilderness. He set them free. He liberated, second thing, actually third thing. So if you're following with me, the first thing the kingdom of God does is it gathers a new people. The second thing it does is it confronts evil. What do you see in Pharaoh? Kingdom of God confronting the kingdoms of this world. Third thing it does is it liberates people. You see Israel coming out of Egypt into a new land. Now the fourth thing is gonna do is God's gonna give them his law. He's going to invite them to live under his authority once again. Do you see the pattern? God gathers a people, he confronts evil, he liberates that people, and that at the Mount Sinai, 10 Commandments, what's he doing? You are my people, you are my chosen and precious, you're my sons, you're my daughters. Now live under my authority, flourish, be a city on a hill, be the salt of the earth, go out and be an example to all these nations who live in different ways. Be circumcised, why? Set yourself apart. All of those laws are to set the people of God apart so that others would see the value and the beauty and the majesty of God's kingdom. But what happened? How did we do? We became like Pharaoh. Israel became little pharaohs. They wanted kings. They wanted to be like Egypt and Syria. They wanted to be like the big boys. They wanted to have the right shoes. They wanted to have the right body, the right income, the right titles, the right nationality, the right politics. They went out and instead of submitting themselves to the kingdom of God, which is often countercultural, God does some weird stuff. You know, when he goes out and he wants to display his power, it's like, hey, leave half the army behind, you know? Let's take the weak ones. Let's take the small guy, the guy that just joined up this week, right? I want to use the weak. I want to use the small. I want to use the insignificant. And it doesn't make sense to the kingdom of the world. 
king of the world says, no, that doesn't, that's not how you win a battle, but that's how God does things. It requires submitting to his authority. And so what does Israel do? They rebel. But the interesting thing is the first time God is called a king is in the story of the Exodus. Once God had rescued a new people, once God had confronted evil and liberated, and watch this in Exodus chapter 15, it's the first time that God is declared to be king. Exodus chapter 15. It's this song. This is called the Song of the Sea. It's a worship song. They're worshiping God after they've been rescued out of Egypt. It's Exodus 15 verse 1. And then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Now jump down, verse 18, and here's this phrase. The Lord, now that's Yahweh, will reign forever and ever. God is king forever. Now think about this. How did God express his kingdom? How did his rule come into the world? By gathering a people? by confronting injustice and brokenness and sin, by liberating that people, and then giving them the 10 commandments saying, I want you to surrender now. Guys, listen, you've rebelled long enough. You've done, spent enough time doing what pagans choose to do. Humble yourself under my authority and you will be salt and light in the world. Now, again, what happened? You know the story, right? They failed. And that's where the prophets come in. You see, what happens is it's not the first enslavement it's the second it's not in Egypt it's in Babylon so these are big swaths right and because they were rebellious God says okay I've got to teach you I've got to discipline you I've got to bring you under hardship so that you might cry out once again and they're carried off into Babylon and this is where all the prophets stand up and the prophets start saying God is going to come back again God and remember what's he going to do when he comes back you've got the four points already he's going to gather a new people He's gonna confront evil, and evil is not always just teaching. Sometimes it's brokenness, physical brokenness, or broken by sin. It's, it's oppression of the mind. It's demonic. It's injustice. It's, it's a lot of teaching, and so he's going to address that, and then what is he gonna do? He's gonna liberate, and then finally, he's going to invite us, come follow me, live under my authority, live under my reign. This is what the prophets are crying about. A day is coming when Yahweh will come back and once again establish his kingdom. So you're James, you're John, you know those stories, right? You're, you're Peter. You've been waiting for this day. You're living under oppression from the Romans. You're wondering, when is the kingdom of God gonna come? And these are the words that Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 52, verse seven. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, that means Jerusalem, your God, your God is king. Now realize when Isaiah spoke, Israel was in a very bad place, just like they are in Jesus' day. They're oppressed, they're broken. And what is he saying is our hope? There's gonna be a watchman on the wall. That's how the things worked in the past. He didn't have text, he didn't have media, he didn't have news, he didn't have newspapers. So what would happen is there'd be a watchman. The watchman would be looking out and you know there's a battle raging on. You know that your nation is in trouble and what you long to see is a messenger, a proclaimer, an evangelist to come and proclaim good news. And that's what Israel wanted. What's the good news? Well, watch this, verse eight. 
Here's the watchman on the wall. The voice of your watchman, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Why are they singing for joy? For, for eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh, the return of God. His kingdom is returning once again. Break forth together in singing. You wasted places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has laid bare his holy arm. That means his power, his strength. Before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, if you go to chapter 53, and you can read that later, in chapter 53, you see how God's power and authority gets expressed. How does God's power and kingdom come? He was bruised for our transgressions. Who starts a kingdom that way? He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought Israel and us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Who begins a kingdom like that? See, when James and John, when they're listening to this prophet from the north, and they hear him say, the kingdom of God is at hand, that is a pregnant statement. It has just ignited a flame of all the prophets and all the story of the Old Testament because Jesus sees himself as the one who is setting right all the things the kingdoms of the world have set wrong. What's sin? It's the kingdom of the world. Jesus called it this age. Paul calls it the age of sin and death. Jesus said this world, it's under the prince of this world. It's under a false authority. Jesus sees himself as the one that is making right everything that sin has made wrong. Now the question becomes, how is he doing this? Because we already know a lot of bad kingdoms, right? We've seen a lot of bad kings. We've seen the movies. We've heard about it. How does his kingdom get expressed? Well, watch this. Watch, let's go back to chapter four and verse 18. It, the kingdom of God shows up with the king walking beside a lake just walking, and he starts calling people. This is how the kingdom shows up. Verse 18, while walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. He said, come follow me. And then notice the language, I'm gonna make you. I will make you into something new. I will make you fishers of men. I will make you great teachers, proclaimers of the gospel. And then in the next sentence, we have these two other Brothers, immediately they left their nest, so they're in. Verse 21, and going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending nets, and he called them. Now watch this, verse 22, immediately they left the boat, they left their father, and followed him. Why the boat, why their father? Because that's their identity. I mean, hey, we wrap up our identity into what we do, don't we? Our doing defines our being. And he says, no, not any longer. Your being is being defined by me. And they left all their other priorities behind and they followed Jesus. Not because they didn't love their father, but their father wasn't first. The kingdom of God has come. God is doing something new. I gotta pay attention. I've gotta respond to what he's doing. And they followed, they followed him. And so what does it mean to live under God's kingdom? If Jesus was bringing in, ushering in the kingdom of God, what does it look like? Well, it's gonna require a lot of teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, why is the Sermon on the Mount? Through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God is coming in. And God is saying to you, this is how money finds its value in my kingdom. 
He's not just telling you what to do. Don't, don't think of the Sermon on the Mount as 2,000-year-old commandments of how we're supposed to live so that hopefully we'll get a treat at the end. He's saying, no, when the kingdom of God is present, this is how money gets used in my kingdom. You wanna know what power is? I'll show you how power gets used in my kingdom. Now, we know how power works in the kingdom of the world, right? You know, so another group takes over, we put our man in place, and now our man's in place, and we're gonna put his men and his women in place, and that's gonna make everything right. And is everything right? It doesn't make everything right. And so James and John, they're thinking, hey, our man's coming into power, we're going to Jerusalem, we're gonna ride on that war horse, we're gonna come in and we're gonna take over these Romans. And Jesus looks at James and John and says, listen, we don't lord authority. If we have authority, it comes from God, and that authority is a stewardship, and we are servants. The greatest of all in the kingdom of heaven is a servant. Why? Because God's kingdom is being revealed. You see, these laws, they only make sense if the kingdom is coming. Why love your enemies? Because the kingdom's coming, and the kingdom is at hand. Why pray for those who persecute? It doesn't make sense in the kingdom of man, but if it's in the kingdom of God, and God is ushering, and heaven is coming down and making all things right, these commands now make sense. They only make sense if you understand what Jesus' message was. And that's why he has to teach. And as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, let me say something. It should offend you. If the Sermon on the Mount doesn't offend you at some point, you're not reading it. He's gonna say things about how we use our body. Now, not because he's trying to control our bodies. He's saying this is how flourishing in life happens in the kingdom of God. He's gonna say things to us about how we use our money, and he has the audacity to tell me, I've gotta go forgive people who hurt me. But God, you don't understand, they hurt me. They, they are the problem, okay, Jesus? No, they're the Romans. They stole cousin Jimmy's land, bro. We don't go and treat them kindly. And he says, Jason, you don't understand. You wanna operate in the kingdom of man. Repent, pay attention. Something new is coming into the world. Are you willing to surrender your authority and trust me. If the Sermon on the Mount doesn't offend you, you're not listening to it close enough. As we get into it, it should make, at times, it'll make you angry. Some people say, you know, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, are you serious? You know what he's doing? Which, which one of those, those items, those four? You got the four, right? He gathered the people. What did he do second? Confronted evil. Sermon on the Mount confronting evil, but the evil is in me. <laughs> Before you go address your brother's speck, Jason, I want to take the log out of your eye. You're not gonna be useful for my kingdom if I don't address the evil in you. Israel, what does Jesus talk about? Fasting, who fasts? Not the pagans, pagans aren't fasting. <laughs> Who's giving to the poor? It's not the pagans, it's not those guys, it's not the bad people, it's not the Romans, it's us. And he's saying, I care about your heart. The first evil I've got to overcome, the first land I've got to take back from me, what needs to be liberated is sin and this rebellion and this authority that you have in your heart. It's got to surrender itself under my kingdom. What's the teachings of Jesus? It's showing us how counterintuitive the kingdom of God is. We don't get it. And, and that's why James and John, they didn't get it, right? And then what happens after chapters five, six, and seven, you have chapters eight and nine. Go read chapters eight and nine. These are the kind of people in chapters eight and nine who are attracted to the kingdom of God. Try to find yourself in that list. Go look 
at the people that are attracted. After he preaches and teaches the kingdom, he demonstrates the kingdoms with his deeds. And you see the shameful and the broken. You see a woman who's had this flow of blood and she's set free. You see people who have brokenness and demon-possessed and, and, and they're all flocking to Jesus. Why? Because there's hope. Because the broken are restored. God's kingdom shows up, but it doesn't show up among the strong and the powerful. It doesn't show up among the politically great or the intelligent. It shows up among those who are humble enough to respond. The poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. These are the people who respond to the message of the kingdom because they see that God is making all things right. Listen, Jesus wasn't crucified for saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus was not crucified for saying, do unto others as you'd have them do unto. He was crucified because he said, I'm bringing God's kingdom. It's coming through me. Jesus is Lord. There's nothing more radical. And today, there's a lot of religions that say our God is Lord. And if you don't obey us, if you don't come under his authority, what will we do to you? Not God's kingdom. Jesus says, if you do not come under my authority, I will die for you. If you will not listen to my teaching, I will suffer for you. If you will not recognize my glory, I will display it for you on the cross. I will humble myself. And it's through that liberation that we can now go, I can now surrender myself to him. What do you see in Jesus when you think about Jesus, what you think about says a lot about what you think he's come to accomplish. And so let me ask just two questions. When somebody comes to my office, two questions I'm gonna ask. Before you even start talking, I'll say, hey, listen, I don't know what you're about to share, but before you share it, are you coming in and are you willing to submit whatever you're gonna share under God's authority and his empowering presence? That's the first thing I'll say. When you're coming, are you willing to surrender whatever you're about to deal with under God's authority and his powering presence? And can we just pray for that? Because I don't have any techniques. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, I'm just, that's not who I am. But if you're willing to surrender, so the first thing, are you willing to surrender it? And then here's the second question. What would it look like to surrender whatever you're dealing with under God's authority and his empowering presence? Are you willing to take your sin, your brokenness, that bad relationship, and all you need to do is just say, God, I wanna surrender X, Y. I wanna surrender this under your authority. You're king. I've seen what the kingdoms of the world do, and I know that kingdom is in me. I wanna submit that kingdom to you. I don't wanna be in rebellion. I don't wanna be in that brokenness. And even though I don't understand your teachings right now, and I don't know how it leads to life, God, I'm just gonna humble myself, and I'm gonna surrender myself to you. And then God's empowering presence comes next. His Holy Spirit comes in. And the Holy Spirit begins to work. Are you willing to surrender whatever is going on in your life to his authority and his empowering presence? And see, in that place of submission, that's where the Spirit of God can work. That's where the Sermon on the Mount comes alive because he produces through us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Out of us, heaven on earth begins to flourish and what we were created for to be truly human in God's presence, the world starts to see it. And they see that we're not angry at them. We don't hate you. Our kingdom doesn't show up to crush. What does John 3, 16 say, right? For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What's 17? Didn't send his son into the world to 
You already know it, guys. You can preach it. Now we need to live it. This is how God's kingdom shows up. And when we are willing to surrender under his authority, he restores all things that sin has destroyed. One day it's gonna be incomplete. It's gonna be complete, but right now it's impartial. The question is, are you willing to surrender yourself? And as we go into the Sermon on the Mount, are you willing to surrender that, that heart and are you willing to allow his voice to be your authority and say, Father, I need your empowering presence because I'm not gonna make it through this, this cleansing of my brokenness without your healing and grace. That's where we're gonna go in the next couple of weeks. Hey, this morning, I wanna encourage you to come to the communion table. Maybe what you need to do is just confess and just allow, allow your heart to be surrendered to him, to surrender whatever's going on, whatever challenges. God's okay with your doubts. He's okay with the conflicts. He's just not okay not hearing from you. So would you surrender that to him? Let's meet him there in Jesus, in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you that, I thank you that Psalm 8 was written long after we had rebelled against you, that though you were glorious and you had created all things glorious, you remind us, even in our brokenness, you have crowned us with glory. You have crowned us with honor. You have made us just a little lower than the heavenly beings. Our dignity has not been lost. We are created in the image of God and you wanna breathe life as you did in the beginning, once again, through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, to bring dead bones back alive. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that's not felt the life-giving spirit of Jesus through the gospel coming in and giving life. Would they surrender to you and just admit, Father, I need to be accepted through Christ, through Jesus' righteousness, his righteousness alone. Father, I am a sinner in need of grace. I have rebelled against your authority. I wanted nothing to do with it. But right now, Father, in Jesus' name, through the cross, you have liberated us. And now we want to surrender under, Father, under your covenant, your authority, and your empowering presence. Father, let's pray for anyone that has never said, Father, accept me, forgive me through Christ's cross. Come into my heart, Father. Restore me, make me a child of God. They pray that this morning. Lord, for some of us, would, would you just show us in our mind, in our heart, those conflicts we have with your kingdom. We don't like your kingdom, Father, and the things that you're communicating to us, but would we see the goodness of Jesus and surrender with his sacrifice, with his patience, with his mercy? Would we read chapters eight and nine and see the kind of people who are attracted and restored in his kingdom. Father, would we see ourselves in that? And would you humble us so that we could trust you? And Lord, so that we might truly see that your kingdom come and your will be done. And through us, would it be done as it is done right now in heaven? Father, guide us in these truths. In Jesus' name.